Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the third day of Learning 2.0. Yeah, it's been a really fun and exciting event. I have a great keynote speaker for for you right now. It's Lee Rainey from Pew uh, Research Center's Internet American Life Project, where he is the director. I want to. Um, <laughs> The slides are not moving for me, and I cannot tell you why. I think they're still loading. Lee, would you mind going to the next slide? There it is. Click on that. Yeah, there. Thanks to our sponsors and supporters. Yeah, I had to come back into the room, and so it, I'm still downloading the slides. Thanks to our sponsors and supporters, Follett and Intel, um, really helping out with the conference and. Um, Mighty Bell Blackboard Collaborate, taking it global, ed program at web.net and edutopia, providing some support and some publicity. Go ahead, uh, if you would, lead to the next slide. So we'll turn the time over now to Lee. Lee, thanks so much. Actually, before we do so, this is Lee's new book called Network, the New Social Operating System. Uh, hopefully, you'll be inclined to buy it after this session. And so I'll try and make sure there's a link in the chat for that. Thanks, Lee, and go right ahead. Thanks so much, Steve. I really appreciate this opportunity, and I'm delighted to be with you all. I um, wanted to just introduce Pew a little bit more fully to you folks, because it will help explain my approach to the things I'm describing. The Pew Charitable Trust is our main funder here at the, at the Pew Research Center's Internet and American Life Project. It's a big American charity, and Pew is a family name. Mr. Pew, uh, several generations ago, discovered oil in Pennsylvania and turned it into the Sun Oil and now Sunoco fortune. And his children, grandchildren, and now great-grandchildren have created a wonderful philanthropy that funds all kinds of things, including my project. Uh, and one of the unique elements of the funding that I get from them is that they require that I not advocate for anything. The spirit of our work is to do primary research that will be helpful to people like you, to people in the policy community, to people in the library community, people who are advocating for, for all kinds of change in, in a variety of cultures. But we do it from a disinterested and dispassionate point of view. We, we don't have any agenda driving our work. We're not out to prove a point. There's no Pew policy on net neutrality or, or favors for certain technologies over other technologies. We're strictly about uh, the data and uh, about the, the research that we do. We make arguments off that data, but we don't um, try to persuade anybody that they ought to change their lives in any one direction or another. That's up to you. So, so that's, uh, we call ourselves a fact tank rather than a think tank because think tanks are made up of people who are policy entrepreneurs. They, they think of great new policy ideas and they try to promote them in the political system we are a step removed from that. We are in the business of providing data that other people can, can um, build into their lives and, and to, to use in the ways that they see fit. So that's the spirit by which I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to throw a lot of data at you and, and some insights from our data, but I'm going to hope that you're going to figure out how to make it work in, in your life, in your classrooms, in your scholarship. I thought that there were four main uh, questions that we ought to ponder together uh, because the, the arrival of digital technologies has changed the very nature of, of media communications and, and knowledge itself. 
So the four questions I'm going to be tackling in this presentation are what's the future of knowledge? Uh, how is it being created? How is it being disseminated in, in the new systems, the new media ecology that we live in? The second question is what's the future of learning spaces? Uh, obviously in the era of mobile connectivity, physical presence has a different meaning now. Collaboration, alliances, ownership of material, ownership of, of ideas and property, uh, of intellectual property is, a, is a, in a very different position now from the way it was before. Uh, I'm particularly interested in the future of reference expertise. Lots of teachers, librarians, scholars of other kinds are, are very anxious to know what, what's the role of experts in this new world and what kind of literacies are important to navigating this new world successfully and, and teaching in this new world successfully. And I'm particularly interested in the future of community anchor institutions like schools and libraries. Uh, in a knowledge economy, um, they obviously play important roles, but it's probably different roles than the ones that they were playing in the era of industrial media rather than the era that we're currently in, new media and digital technology. So that's sort of the structure of my talk. And I wanted to just go through some of our basic data. The, the Pew Internet Project has been in business for about 12 years now, getting funding from the Pew Charitable Trust. And three revolutions in technology have unfolded during the time that we've been researching. It's hard to think of a field that has changed more dramatically than, than the technology field, the digital uh, spaces that, that we were empowered to explore with our first grant from the Pew Charitable Trust. So I, I wanted to walk through those three revolutions. And I also want to hear your questions. So Steve has promised that he'll watch the chat space uh, to, to see if there are questions or things you want me to elaborate or things that you think I've gone over too quickly. Uh, I'm, I'm really anxious to hear that and to, to respond to your questions in real time rather than waiting for the end. So, so please feel free to raise your hand or write questions in and, and I hope Steve will interrupt me and, and get me to, to make sure to address the things that are on your mind. So anyway, here, here's the start of the, the three revolutions that we've been measuring. These are all United States data, um, and, and that's the funding we get is, is for looking at the situation in the United States. We would love to have international funding and love to look at this material cross-culturally. So anybody who knows any grant maker that has a lot of money to spend on cross-cultural studies, uh, I'm raising my hand because we'd be interested in doing it. Anyway, in the United States, when we first did our very first uh, national phone survey in March of 2000, we found that about half of American adults and about three-quarters of American teenagers were already online. So we, we came into the Internet story about halfway through as far as the American experience uh, was concerned. But we have also seen growth now to 82% to, uh, of American adults and 94% of American teenagers now consider themselves Internet users. But a story that definitely unfolded during the time we've been researching this space is the rise of broadband, particularly broadband at home. We did not even ask a broadband question in our very first survey. Uh, and we, so we were about a year into our life before we started asking, do you have this high speed always on connection in your house? About 4% of Americans uh, had broad, broadband connections in their homes in, in early 2001. Now it's two-thirds of Americans. 66% of Americans have high speed always on connections at home. In the upper right-hand corner over there, you see 71%. That's the total number of home Internet users in the general population of the United States. So a very small portion of Americans still have dial-up connections, but the vast majority now have uh, broadband connections at home. And we let them self-define. We don't uh, sort of technically fact-check them whether they've actually got a, 
a really, really high-speed connection or not. But we, we, they know whether they have a DSL service or a fiber service or a cable modem or something like that. And the striking thing that we saw as people moved from the dial-up environment to the broadband environment is that they spent more time online. They did more things online. Their repertoire of Internet activities sharply expanded. But the biggest single change, and probably the biggest change of the Internet era, is they became uh, content creators themselves. I'm moving to the next slide just to show you that in, in America, this is a generational story. Broadband connections at home are um, most prevalent among younger adults and, and least prevalent among older folks. But it's still the case that a fifth of Americans now, who are 75 and older, now have broadband connections at home. And here's the content creator story that, I, that is so striking in our data. About two-thirds of adults and three-quarters of teenagers now uh, create content of one kind or another. They're not writing war and peace or pride and prejudice. They're not necessarily um, artists or, or accomplished writers or anything like that, but they are definitely contributing to media spaces. This is radically democratized media spaces so that people can tell their own stories and give their own impressions and talk about the things that they are witnessing in a way that they never could in, a, in very public forums um, like online spaces. We measure content creation by a variety of topics, and I've listed them in the bullets uh, on this slide. We just got data back early this week from, from early August, so these are as fresh as, as we can possibly get them, that 69% of Internet users in America, these are all adults now, are social networking site users. That's one of the most dramatic stories, and I'll cover it a little bit later on because I consider that the, three, the third revolution in the story that we have captured. But right now, for content creation purposes, these are really important spaces, first of all, because lots of people are on them. But secondly, because by posting on their walls and commenting on other things and giving status updates and sharing pictures and things, they are active participants in the media culture in a way that their parents and their grandparents never were. Of course, a lot of them are sharing uh, photos and videos now. A, a major part of the rise of social media in America is that pictures have really become co-equal to text as a way that people are, are sharing what's going on in their lives and interacting with other people. Then those sort of black bullets in the middle are, are, are a variety of ways that people rank and rate and comment on, on situations that they encounter. And we count that as content creation in our data. And I've highlighted those red bullets below just because there are services that are getting a lot of attention and seem to matter to a lot of people. Again, the newest data that we've got uh, from early August are that 16% of American adults, uh, internet users, 1-6%, are users of Twitter. So Twitter isn't nearly as popular and nearly as highly adopted as Facebook is. Um, but it's important because the people who are on Twitter tend to have the profile of influencers. There are people who want to talk to other people about what they see and do. There are other people who share stories and links and have all of the characteristics of influencers because they are looking a lot at civic and media spaces uh, to get their cues about what's going on. So even though it's not necessarily a, a, an enormous population, Twitter is important because the people who use it, and particularly the ones who use it a lot, are influencers. They, the things that they talk about shape the conversations and influence the conversations of other people who are following them in Twitter or in other spaces. Right now our blogging number has been stuck at 14% for years. I think part of the story of that, of course, is that blogging things are happening in other kinds of websites. So 
you know, people are telling their stories like bloggers used to, but they're doing it in social networking sites. So there's lots of blogging um, uh, parent material going on online, but people don't call it blogging uh, probably in, in the way that they might have uh, five or six or eight years ago. Still in all, it's an important community because the people who blog are, again, more active in civic culture, more active in political culture, more active in their communities, and so they sort of just have disproportionate voice and influence on the way things are shaping up in their communities. Uh, and finally down there, we've begun to measure location services, and we measure them in two ways. And so just among smartphone owners, about a fifth of them, or 18%, uh, share their locations through services like Gowalla and Foursquare. And, and we've seen a rise in that in the, in the past couple of years as those, those services, those checking services where people check in and, and alert their friends and alert local businesses about where they are. But more importantly on location services, three quarters of people who have smartphones, 74%, uh, use their smartphones to figure out where they are and figure out what's around them and sometimes figure out who is around them in, in using those services. So we count that as content creation in part because people are sharing where they are and in part because they're using location services to identify things around them. And also it's, it's just built into social media now in a way that, that is useful to capture and useful for, for us to catalog. Here are our latest data on, on ownership of various devices in America. Just as a, I think of many of my talks uh, to audiences like this, you, you guys are all high-tech users. I'm, I'm probably not telling you anything that you don't know already other than by telling you the specific um, statistics on things. But I see my talks as sort of boss bait. I, I, I want it to be useful to you as you go back to your bosses and say, really, the Pew data shows that this world really is a, a big world and th these changes really are occurring in the wide population and you ought to pay attention to them even if you are not necessarily avidly engaged yourself with this material. So here's some more boss bait for you. Um, but, and, and then I call your attention particularly to the bottom two, the, the rise of ebook readers and the rise of tablet computers. There was a dramatic jump in ownership of both devices in that last holiday gift giving season. In mid-December, Ownership of each of those devices sat at around 10%. So 10% of the public had an e-book reader, 10% of the public had a, a tablet computer. Those numbers essentially jumped during the holiday gift giving season as people gave them and received them as gifts. And so by mid-January, 19% of Americans had e-book readers and 19% had tablet computers. And we've just gotten the new data that suggests that the tablet number is growing pretty smartly ever since then. The e-book reader number isn't quite growing as much, but it's still it's rising a bit now. More than a fifth of Americans have, have each of these devices. And again, sort of knowledge containers themselves. It used to be books. Books were knowledge containers. And magazines and newspapers were. Well, literally the form in which knowledge takes place as well as the way in which it evolves is changing in the digital landscape and the Kindle uh, and Nook and other ebook readers and as well as the iPad and the Galaxy and other tablet computers are very dramatically a part of that story. For the local, for the learning system, of course, the rise of digital information, the rise of internet and broadband and all these other devices has changed, um, you know, the, the, the physics of, of information. If there's more of it, it comes to us more quickly. The media environments themselves are more vibrant. As more and more data get packed into them, uh, they are they're just immersive in ways that they didn't used to be. 
And the relevance uh, valence of information, I always keep a V formula there. So the valence of information is now interestingly challenged, but we see that about half of American adults now have some sort of system to refilter information so they get access to the material that they want when they want it. They set up alerts, they set up their special social media feeds, they've created RSS pages, they, even their listservs or, or other groups that they belong to are now ways that they filter information to make sure that the stuff that they care about, sometimes it's highly important and professional information, other times it's just sort of more lighthearted and like spirited information like the hobbies they like or the favorite sports teams that they like or the favorite music that they like. There's a lot, there are a lot of ways now that people are customizing the information flows into their lives through, through these uh, filtering and customization tools that I'm referring to uh, here. And so information consumption has grown dramatically in past generations. This is wonderful work that was done by the University of California at San Diego where they uh, have tracked the growth in information consumption um, from, from sometimes the early 1960s and sometimes the late 1980s to, to now. And they just, people are spending more time with media. They're spending more time processing words that are coming into their life. They're reading a lot more than their, their parents and grandparents did as recently as 1980. And just that, that number, people are processing about 100,500 words per day and 34 gigabytes of information. I wish Pew Internet had come up with that data. I'm very jealous of the researchers who did, but it just shows you how much we live in, in sort of pervasive media spaces uh, these days. And th so that's how we measure the impact of broadband. Uh, it, it facilitates uh, networked information. There are lots of ways now that information, the character of information has changed because it can be linked to, it can be added to, it can be there are lots of feedback, can be built into it. And so from a learning perspective, uh, network information, first of all, means that, it, that knowledge is linked. And knowledge has, is not just text-based or, or video-based. It's often combined in, in multimedia presentations. Obviously, the capacity people have for self-paced learning has been growing. There are lots of ways now that people can upgrade their skills or, or just add to their funded knowledge or learn new things without necessarily going through the formal process of going to courses. Media are pervasive now, of course. We live in a sea of data and media, and our screens render it to us. And, and it's a very different situation from where we had to have appointments with media as we got our newspaper, or we watched the evening newscast, or we listened to news at the top of the hour, or stuff like that. And of course, one of the most interesting elements of this, of this change in volume and velocity of information is that there's a whole new class of, of, of businesses as well as a class of people that are thinking about analytics. In the education industry alone now, there are just lots of new thinking about how to measure teacher performance, how to measure student performance and credentialing. What, how do you assess whether students are learning well or in, in mastering the material that's being given to them? There are new ways now that that all this rich data that are being generated uh, by people as they march through life, that it can be analyzed and, and the, um, the, the new analytics, the new algorithms of, of looking at information is only going to grow as a, as a deeper presence in the educational environment in years to come because um, there's a lot of commotion about big data and analytics uh, in, the, in the business world. So of course for schools, um, this change from an atom-based or you know, paper-based knowledge containers and paper-based rendering of knowledge to bit-based 
containers and bit-based rendering of knowledge. Uh, the whole process of, of thinking about where does knowledge sit now has been disrupted as in, in this dramatic change. So that's the first revolution. Maybe I'll pause here, Steve, to see if there are any questions coming from the crowd that, that I would be wise to address at this point before I move on to the mobile connectivity revolution. You know, there was one thread that came up through the chat, and it was a question about our um, expectation of being able to network socially. And what if a, an organization like Facebook went out of business, or Facebook specifically? Um, what, what would happen? And um, I'm not sure there's an easy answer to that, but do you have a response to it? Sure. I, you know, I think that the, the, the rise of Facebook is part of a continuing sometimes um, highly um, you know, revolutionary series of steps towards new patterns of communication that started with email and in many ways continues with email and instant messaging uh, as well as new, newer social spaces. My guess is if, if Facebook were wiped off the Internet, and this is some process I couldn't anticipate, uh, people are so creative now and so appreciative of the capacity of these new digital systems to give them access to people, help them find others in communities and stuff, that there would be, uh, you know, the, the computer worker would be a hack. There would be some, actually a series of hacks to put together ways for people to, to exploit these technologies for the social purposes that have become so compelling to people. And, and so obviously, uh, educators among others have to make sure that they're not placing all their chips in one basket about, about one platform or one application of, of social media. But my guess is that, that you know, there are multiple ways that, that students engage with teachers and vice versa and students engage with each other and that teachers would be among the first to figure out how to, to do, do a lot of stuff in a Facebook-less world if they become used to Facebook. I, it, my sense is it would be a relatively short order period before some clever hacker, some clever teacher, or probably a combination of both would come together with a new system that would give us, you know, would give students exactly what they wanted uh, and are now sometimes getting in the Facebook environment. Any other questions? Was there uh, an inherent tension? Was there a tension between our in our definition of permanence, we assume that if something gets posted on the web that it's there forever, and yet at the same time, if a social media company goes out of business, that we potentially lose everything that we have placed there. Um, have, are we treating the permanence of information differently? Yes, of course, people are treating the permanence differently, and it's going in a variety of directions. So, so central to the question, of course, is uh, whether information vanishes if you place it in one platform that goes out of business. You know, librarians have actually been struggling with a sort of longer term problem about format changes, you know, as the evolution of storage from floppy disks to hard disks to hard disk drives now to thumb drives to, to uh, purveying things in the cloud. Librarians have struggled to keep up with the new formats and have wondered, uh, you know, about the resources they have to allocate for storage in different formats and, of course, storage in different languages. You know, the, the language by which a lot of these data are rendered has been changing and, and the way that websites are constructed or the way that web applications are structured. So, so there, there is a, a persistent concern about, about the permanence of information and what gets lost and what gets doesn't, uh, what, what, what gets saved or what 
was preserved into the next generation. I call your attention, particularly those of you that might be outside the United States, to a wonderful resource here in the United States called the Internet Archive, which actually tries to archive on a regular basis as much of the web as is possible and is now trying to make deals with cloud computing companies to make sure that that material isn't lost in the future. The Library of Congress is also thinking very dramatically about what they store, how they store it, and what format, and how they make that available to other people. So there are ways in which that, that's an issue. The, the, but the other side of the story, of course, is that there are some people who worry that information has become more or less permanent. In other words, if you've left a digital set of fingerprints and footprints from your high school years to the, the middle of your career in your 30s as you, as you are working your way up the ladder or building a reputation in a community even if you're apart from a job, that, that there are people who are quite worried about are the goofball things that they did as teenagers going to come back to haunt them in their careers later on. And so the permanence of information is, a, is actually um, a, a, you know, another issue that people are wrestling with in this new age. And of course it's combined with the, with the capacities of these amazing search engines that can go back into the past and find stuff or tree stuff on particular people that they might have thought was, was long since vanished. And so there, it's disorienting now to think that essentially your digital past follows you into the future and, and, and the permanent record about you is, is part of the digital trail that you are carrying through the rest of your life. So we're struggling at both ends of the problem in, in, uh, in figuring out how to adjust social norms, educational norms, educational practices in this new environment. And you know we're working our way through it, but it's, it's not entirely certain that we're going to preserve everything that needs to preserve, and it's certainly not entirely certain that we're going to get, be able to get rid of stuff that we'd like to be able to get rid of. Any other okay, questions? thanks, Lee. I think you can move on. Okay, great. Well, the second revolution, which I should have labeled here as the second revolution, is mobile connectivity. And uh, these are data from the CTIA, which is a, a trade association of mobile providers in the United States, that talk about how many millions of, digit, of, of mobile subscribers there are mobile subscriptions there are in the United States. And you'll see that by the end of 2011, there were 331.6 million subscriptions issued by American vendors. That's more than the number of people, the number of human beings there are in the United States. There are 315.5 million at the end of 2011. So it speaks to the nature of this hyper-connected society that we live in that there are now more mobile subscriptions. People have a phone subscription and a tablet subscription. People have multiple phone subscriptions, and they might have a, a card that they slip into their laptop and stuff. So there are lots of ways now that we are using these devices to stay always on the grid and always available to people in, in many cases of our lives. Here's some of our, our data about mobile phone ownership. I, again, this new data that I saw from early August shows that 89% of American adults have cell phones. Um, and um, so there are 11% who don't, and even though there are more subscriptions than there are people, there are clearly people in American culture, just as there are elsewhere, who, who don't have access to mobile phones. And it's partly a generational story, although now 50-year-olds in America are almost as likely to have a cell phone as 28-year-olds, which is a really interesting development. And again, I, on the far right there, you see that two-thirds of those who are age 65 and older have a cell phone. So it's, a, it's now a very embedded part of American culture. Um, in smartphones, we, we passed a real milestone in our data earlier in the year. And I'm sorry, uh, the light went out behind me just here, so I'm a little bit more in the dark than I was before. 
Um, when we uh, we do regular surveys about tech adoption, and we saw that in our early uh, 2012 data, we had reached a tipping point. More people in the United States, more adults now own a smartphone than own a feature phone, the kind of phones that only make phone calls and only do text messaging. Smartphones are ones that connect to the internet, have apps on them, and, and things like that. And, and those numbers will only get more pronounced as, as the, and the gap between them will become more pronounced as the years go by, in part because smartphone prices are dropping, in part because fewer phone vendors are, are giving out just plain phones. Uh, and so this is again, radically changed people's expectations about access to data and access to their friends as they carry around a ton of computing power in their pockets and their purses. Again, there's a generational story that, that's tied to the rise of the smartphone. Um, more young people have them in America than, than are older folks. But again, it's, it's now become a situation that close to half the population uh, uses them. And a big part of the rise of, of mobile connectivity is the rise of apps culture. These are relatively old data. We haven't updated this survey in a while, but even in mid-2011, uh, more than half of, or about half of American adults had apps on a device of theirs. They downloaded or they already bought a device with an, an app preloaded on it. And they, you know, apps come in a variety of flavors. They, they are, there are news apps, there are finance apps, there are sports apps, there are, there are health and fitness apps, there are gaming apps, uh, there are social media apps, and, and there are a lot of ways now that the rise of the apps ecosystem has enhanced the value of mobile connectivity to lots of users. And of course, from an educator's point of view, apps are really interesting because they sort of change the terms of engagement that people have with knowledge and information. When people download load an app from an institution, they are saying, this institution is one that I trust or one that will give me what I want um, in this new information ecology. I'm not depending on the World Wide Web. I'm not depending on a search engine. I'm not depending on my browser to get me uh, this information. I'm, I'm, I'm connecting to a specific organization, institution, sometimes a commercial one. And so mobile connectivity now has, has sort of um, been a, um, uh, it's generated hope, for instance, for media companies that they can reestablish much more firm um, uh, relationships with, with purchasers and with their customers in a way that they couldn't on the free uh, browser-based uh, searchable World Wide Web. A big part, of course, of the rise of mobile connectivity is the rise of text messaging. These are um, these are teenage data uh, that basically show that text messaging has overtaken every other kind of preferred communication that they have with their friends. We ask them, how, how often do you communicate with your friends outside of the school environment? The school is a special place where they can't necessarily um, use every uh, available technology. But it's, text messaging now is far and away the most preferred way that teenagers deal with their friends or most frequently deal with their friends. And of course, email way down at the bottom there is the least preferred way that, that teenagers want to deal with their friends. Although I would point out to educators that at least in America, teenagers will, will pretty contentedly use email if they're dealing with an elder. If they're dealing with a teacher, if they're dealing with a family member who's older, if they're dealing with a a scoutmaster or a team uh, coach or something like that. Email is perfectly fine for that, but when they're dealing with their friends, email is way down the list of ways that they uh, prefer to communicate. And so this environment has also uh, really changed the, the, the media ecosystem. Obviously, there are new 
access points to knowledge. That AAA reference at the bottom of the left-hand column there means anytime, anywhere, any device. Just means that people now expect, if they, particularly if they've got a smartphone or a tablet, that they can get access to whatever media, data, or knowledge that they care about in a few clicks or swipes of, of, their, of their hands. Um, obviously, mobile connectivity has increased the desirability of and people's expectations for real-time information and just-in-time searching. They now think that you know, when they have a need, they can whip out their phone and get it, get the information that they want or get the people that they want um, in, a, in a very short time. Another big change is that, um, that in this media, in the mobile environment, people are much more aware of their social networks. That, that obviously, when you can click on your, you know, the tweet app or you can click on your Facebook app on your smartphone, you've got instant access to your network. And, and as I'm going to talk about a little bit later, social networks are becoming really important ways for people to learn things and to share and evaluate knowledge. Um, one of the most striking changes in the mobile environment is, as, as I say, attention zones are morphing. Um, obviously, there's a lot of interest in and concern about multitasking, as people uh, use multiple devices to, to access material or to divide their attention. We, we, about half of Americans now regularly watch TV with their smartphone or their tablet next to them, and they're talking to other people, sharing instant messaging, commenting on things, looking up things that they've seen on TV. So multiple screens are a common way of life for lots of Americans now. But I would also say that this environment is also great not just for dividing attention, but for, um, for uh, focusing attention if somebody has a real interest or real concern or real passion about something. So that this environment now allows people that when something moves them or when something just becomes important to them, they can dig as deeply into the subject as they care to. They, they can uh, find out about the most up-to-date scholarship on, 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 on illnesses or on planetary movements or on zoology or something like that. Uh, they don't need credentials. They don't need to necessarily go to school and, and have formal training and stuff. If they care about it, this is a wonderful environment for them to dig as deeply into any subject that they care about. Again, that's a big change for the role of educators in their lives and the way that they think about experts in their lives. And finally, that top point there, the rise of, of mobile connectivity has enhanced um, augmented reality for people. And, you know, many, many of the apps that people download to their smartphone or their tablet essentially merge data into their real-world experiences. I, you know, the common example that, that a lot of people experience now is they have Stargazer or, or stargazing apps uh, on their smartphone. And they will spend part of their evenings pointing their smartphone at the stars in the sky, and the app will tell them what, um, what, what constellations they're looking at or what stars are brightest in the sky. Because the, the smartphone, of course, knows where they are so that, that it can tell, and it knows through its gyroscopes where, where uh, you know, which direction they're pointing in and things. And so these apps have enhanced the experience of people uh, stargazing because they can tell you what you're looking at, what will be in the sky in that same place a month from now, what was in the sky uh, a month ago in that place. 
and you know there are ways now that this merger of data into physical landscapes or physical experiences is a is a commonplace occurrence in the in the age of mobile connectivity. So the big challenge for educators are obviously people can get access to access to material wherever they are. So instead of people going to schools and classrooms, maybe the idea is that schools and classrooms can go to them. Uh, the whole idea of place-based and, and place-centered learning maybe becomes a bit disrupted as more and more people can experience knowledge and gain knowledge and share in their social networks, uh, no matter where they are. Um, so let me stop again. That's the end of the second revolution. The first was broadband. The second is mobile connectivity. Let me see, Steve, if there are any questions that arose from that segment of my talk. Related to you, there's a question in the chat about resources for mobile phone lesson plans. We'll let, maybe let the other members of the audience answer that, but I think you can keep going. Great. Uh, yeah, this is what crowdsourcing is for. I actually don't know as, probably as much as I should about, about mobile resources, but I bet you other people in this audience know. The third revolution that's occurred on our watch is the social networking revolution, where now uh, more than half of American adults now participate in them. These data are age-related data, so 85% of those who are age 18 to 29 use social networking sites. Uh, actually, 85% of internet users in that age cohort use it. And to me, the most charming number here is that lower one, 35% of the internet users who are age 65 and older now use social networking sites. It's a, it's a sort of magical, enchanting thing that they do. Usually their children or their grandchildren have convinced them if you want to see pictures of me or you want to stay up with my life, you better you know, get a Facebook account and start following me. And, and of course, there are big challenges, too, uh, for family relationships as mom and dad go on to Facebook and want to friend their teenage child or their young adult child. From a social research perspective, it's fabulous to see the new sort of stresses and strains inside families that are occurring. It's, as the, the, the boundaries of friendship and the boundaries of, of access to information are, are changing in these, in these spaces. Uh, here are some data that we have uh, that show the, the, the average size of uh, Facebook networks for people in different uh, generations. Obviously, people who are youngest uh, have, the, have the largest network size and the largest number of friends in their Facebook network. But I'm sort of charmed again by that number at the lower right-hand side. Forty uh, the, the, of the people who are age 75 and older who belong to Facebook, they have an average of 42 friends. And in many cases, those are friends in their lives who have essentially come back into their lives. They, they've rediscovered people that they went to school with or used to work with or used to live nearby. And as they've changed their lives, they might have lost track of some of those folks. Now they're back in their networks. And again, that's sort of the magical and enchanting piece of social networking for older folks is that they are essentially restoring connections to people um, around whom they had lost track. And, and it just feels you know, especially um, meaningful to them to have those kind of relationships. So as social networks get displayed in, in technological ways, of course, people have always had friends. And, and so the, the friendship isn't, you know, a new concept to human uh, connection. 
but friendship in, in these technological social spaces is a new thing, and, it, and it, the boundaries of friendship are getting redefined in interesting ways. So I'll just read from uh, a counterclockwise from, from the top uh, upper left here. Social media aid peer-to-peer -peer learning by doing. There is a lot of evidence, more in other research than in ours, that, that collaboration is sort of built into the social networking spaces, and people are are using their social networks now to, to figure out how the world works or figure out how to navigate information spaces and, and they're getting help from their friends and, and gaining access to material. That second point is elevate DIY learning. That means do-it-yourself learning in social networks. So again, when people have interests now or things that they care about, they will often just sort of launch into their own, sometimes with the help of their networks and, and digging to the bottom or digging to the place where they figure they've gotten the most material that they, that they need to understand the subject. Um, obviously, the role of social networks and learning has increased as, as, as these spaces and social media have become more important. Um, people now turn to their social networks to learn what's going on in the world and help them evaluate information. So in many cases, when, when people discover material that's brand new, they hear about a news story that's brand new, or, oh, and my life has just gone back on. When they, um, when they discover material that doesn't necessarily map with the world as they understood it in their head, they will turn to their smarter friends in their social network and say, what do you make of this? Um, is, is this important? Is this true? And often their friends and their social networks will help them evaluate information. And in many respects now, it would be wise for teachers uh, to think that they, in, in effect, are the, the smarter, wiser nodes in people's networks. They, they can be sort of a, a counterbalance sometimes to bad information or improper information or the lack of information. But, but think of it as, as, in many cases, they are allies rather than experts along the journey. They're, they're helping people as in the spirit of, of a friend helping someone rather than a teacher standing up in front of a class and lecturing to someone about what's right and what's wrong and what's true or not. Um, I say here that, that social networking has changed the character of social networks. There are a whole bunch of ways that we see that in our data. First of all, networks are getting bigger. Uh, thanks to people being able to find others through friends of friends or whatever process, they're adding more people to their networks, both at the intimate level as well as the more far-flung level of acquaintances. So networks are getting bigger, and that means that people have access to more people when they have needs. And networks are becoming more segmented as well. Uh, in, the, in the old days of village life or old days of tight-knit family life, um, there are most everybody depended on everybody else for the same kind of stuff. And so health questions and finance questions and skills questions and knowledge questions were all handled by the same core people in those tight networks. Well, now that networks are bigger and getting more segmented and are getting looser and more far-flung, people sort of um, have different categories of, of their networks or different parts of their networks that they turn to and they've got questions. So they will rely on one segment of friends to help them with a health question another segment to help them with a uh, finance question, another segment to help them with a, a question about social support, another group of their network to help them just to learn things about a particular subject. And so networks have become more segmented in this environment. And then networks are also really good for people just to, to be um, audiences for their social media creations. In this environment where two-thirds of people are creating stuff, 
um, it, we need people to pay attention. And, and a lot of times, if you think about your own experiences in social media, you are trying to post material to show that you're useful, to show that you know things, to, to, to announce to your networks that you have discovered something that you think they might be interested in. And so this audience capacity that, that network shows is a really interesting new dimension of the way people are using social networks. And the final point here, as I, as I say, that networks facilitate the rise of amateur experts. There are ways now that without credentials, without necessarily formal training, without necessarily all the right uh, punch off on skills uh, acquisition, that there are ways that am amateurs are contributing to knowledge creation, contributing to the fund of, of information and data about the world. And it has really changed, in many cases, the character of, of learning spaces. And so this, this rise of peer-to-peer of, uh, of -peer learning and a rise of amateur experts means that, that experts, like teachers and like the people who teach teachers or like librarians, now have to share the stage with amateur experts as they uh, are trying to make sure that people learn the best information and are aware of the, the most correct information uh, in the world. And so all of this stuff, the three revolutions, the broadband revolution, the mobile connectivity revolution, and the social networking revolution has changed the way that information plays out in our lives. At Pew Internet now, we're, we're, our, one of our mantras is mobile is the needle, uh, social networks are the thread through which information passes into people's lives. Mobile means that information moves around us, it moves anytime, anywhere, it puts information available to people at their fingertips. It magnifies people's need for timely information, just-in-time information, and it makes information much more location-sensitive. And social networks then amplify each of those things because they make sure information is around us all the time through our social connections. It, it, our social networks now provide us information from a, a variety of sources in the way that, for instance, newspapers used to provide us information from a variety of sources. Networks now give us instant feedback. If we're doing something, if we say something, or, you know, there's every chance that somebody on our network is going to respond to it. Sometimes affirming it or amplifying it, and other times criticizing it. So there's a whole new dynamic in the way that information is processed in these, uh, in these systems. And in, uh, obviously, the most important thing is people are now creators of information themselves as well as, as, well as sharers. So that there are ways now that information, as it passes through networks and is amplified or disseminated through networks, it, it again sort of takes on a new quality. So I, I'm going to race through these next slides just to, to make sure that I get to some of the end slides that, that matter to me. I, I argue that in this new environment, new kinds of learners emerge in these spaces. I'm sorry these, these uh, tech blocks uh, sort of bump together. If you, if you download the slides from, um, from Steve or from our website, you'll see that they are a little bit more discreet here. Um, but the hallmarks of these new learners are, uh, are several. First of all, they're more reliant on feedback and response than people used to be in, in the era where only teachers graded our papers. Uh, and only you know, adults pass judgment of whether we learn things or not. Now people are getting feedback um, and, and response to everything that they create. When they posted something on their, on, their, on their status updates or when they commented on something, they are getting feedback as well as you know, more formal channels of learning. So, so feedback is much more embedded in the process of learning. People are more uh, self-directed as learners. They, they've obviously got the tools now to venture out on their own and find stuff that interests them. Um, in this new environment, they're also better arrayed to capture new information. And by that I mean 
it's just as easy to, 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 through alerts, through RSS feeds, through, through finding experts who, uh, and others who share the same interests that they do. They can venture out on their own and, and find sort of expert commentary or, or other people who are, who, are, um, who are on the cutting edge of, of subjects and who can pass along new information to them through their tweets or their social media of other kinds. So that is, people now have set up these warning systems and these filtering systems to get the information they want. But these environments are much more conducive to collaboration. So peer-to-peer -peer learning is now a, particularly in the informal sense, is a much more expected part of the learning process for a lot of people to go through. They, they turn to their networks now in interesting new ways. Obviously, people are, are their own nodes of production as, as they share their stories, as they use social media tools to describe things or rate or rank or comment on things. They are now producing information, and, and that's an expected uh, part of the process. And so maybe, Steve, I'm going to pause one more time to make sure people are still with me before I uh, get into the final part of this. Move forward. Okay, but, move on. Uh, maybe toward the end, it sounds like they're, they're interested in a little conversation about the word expert. Okay, good. Um, then actually, let's do that. I'm a, I'm a, just, it, it's kind of complicated to go to go through these things. I'd rather have that conversation than, than um, go through my last slides, so people can see, and um, uh, which again I think are, are going to reaffirm rather than um, enlighten, you know, add to the things that people understand about the world. So let's let's go at that experts. So the, the question was, uh, G. Lovely asked, well, I would love for Lee to define expert. Um, first of all, I, I, a smarter um, and, and more carefully, um, a more careful thinker on this is, I'm going to refer everyone to is my friend David Weinberger, who his, whose newest book is called Too Big to Know, T-O-O, -O, big, too big to know. And he talks about the new configuration of knowledge in this, in this new media ecosystem where many more people are part of the process of creating, sharing, evaluating, giving feedback uh, on knowledge. And I, I would say that I did not, this is not Lee Rainey's definition, but I'm drawn to the characterizations of others that, that expertise is now as much a process as well as a destination, that, that the people who have mastered the processes of gathering up information, curating it in many cases as well as, as creating it, um, and, and who have uh, recognized that they um, are recognized for having uh, mastered a discipline. I mean, there's, there's no substitute for at least you know, showing that you know what you're talking about and have mastered in some sense the canonical texts or canonical works of something, obviously those people are in a much better position to make contributions to knowledge and to be experts and to be, um, to have the status of experts and to be considered as, as the central influencers of their subjects. I, I'm also drawn to the work of Howard Gardner on this, the, the, the creator of the theory of, of multiple intelligences. He talks a lot about um, discipline and mastering a discipline as a core element of the sort of new uh, dimension of expertise that, that, that carries forward from, from our past, but then probably more people qualify as experts than before just because they don't necessarily have the credentials to prove it, but they have shown by the body of their work that they understand the 
the history of the, of the discipline. They understand the sort of newest material. And in many cases, some of the amateurs are the ones who are pushing the envelope on available theories and available data to, to expand stuff. So I'm, I'm, it's a lame way to respond to this question. I don't have a, a sort of ready-made or even a referral now to, the, to what an expert is, in part because I think it's a definition that's in transition as, as the, the essential character of knowledge is changing in this environment. So there's some discussion about uh, recognition and credentialing, and especially in this environment in which um, the, a person's ability to manifest their work is probably more reflective of their expertise or knowledge than maybe a formal credential would be. How do you see this changing? Well, that's obviously part of the content creation story, and there are now a lot of, uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, every academic discipline that I know about um, is, is in the middle of a transition towards um, not necessarily entire reliance on peer-reviewed journals as the definition of successful scholarship or the definition of, of uh, sort of credential additions of expertise. You might have seen that the, you know, the rise of, of, of quarks um, was, uh, um, was, or the work in the Hadron uh, Collider, the material on that was immediately available or available within a very short order on a public website rather than going through the peer review process. And the Public Library of Science now does a tremendous amount of work uh, much more quickly than the peer review process in getting out material, having it evaluated, um, in real time, or at least where lots more material is available. And so I, I love the, the, the phrase you use, Steve, about expanding it to, and showing mastery, not necessarily through a formal credentialing process, but, but just by the body of your work. If you've shown that you've done a decent amount of work, and curation now is, a, is, a, is an essential part of that for teachers. I, I don't think there are as many people now as before who think teachers ought to have the answer to everything. Teachers ought to, in, in this new sort of configuration of expertise, teachers ought to be able to teach people how to find the best stuff and, and curate the best stuff rather than being the master of all this stuff. So it's an expansive definition that, that moves in the direction very much that you were describing, Steve. So Jackie wanted us to come back to uh, your plans for global research on technology use. Well, I would love to do global research on this. Uh, we get a very nice funding from the Pew Trust to do American work, and it, it costs a lot to, to do uh, work uh, in, other, in other cultures. It costs a lot to do it in America, so it's only a resource question. I think what's most interesting to me now, if I, if I got, you know, if I hit the lottery or uh, my fairy godmother gave me a new pot of money, I, I absolutely think that the most interesting and most important new technology development that's going on in the world is the spread of, of cell phones in less developed nations. And in effect, lots of cultures have the potential to jump a generation of technology just by adding cell phones and smartphones to their mix. They haven't necessarily gone through the broadband revolution, but there are amazing ways that the arrival of cell phones, just simple cell phones in, in, in villages have changed the social character of the villages, their sense of their place in their wider regions and their communities. Obviously, dramatic changes are taking place when cell phones come into people's lives as they become economic agents. They're selling their crops, or they're selling their fish catch, or they're trying to find out 
as consumers. Where, where are the best prices that they can pay for available goods and services? There's an enormous transformation that's taking place in all of these domains um, in, in developing countries. And, and in many respects, probably more than the developed world, that the, the nature of change and the, and the impact of the arrival of these technologies is going to be greater than it was for the developed world. You know, there are lots of interests now, um, in, in particularly in the philanthropic world, about using these technologies for healthcare and for using them for educational dissemination now, where if in, if in fact a, you know, a poor kid in Zimbabwe can get access to the best of the best lecturers at MIT or Caltech or Harvard or Stanford or the, uh, or the, the Sorbonne, then um, you know there's a the potential now for for a uh, great flattening of, of the of the global population. Of course, you know digital divides matter a lot. Resources matter a lot. Fundamental building blocks of, of healthcare matter a lot. But this is this, you know this is the excitement that people feel. And and I, if I had more money, that's what I'd be studying right now. Lee, Jennifer is wondering if there are institutions or organizations outside of the U.S. that currently do some of the same kind of research that that you could point us to. Yeah, there um, there are consortia of researchers, particularly in Europe, that are often funded by their governments. Um, Sonia Livingstone at the London School of Economics has, is leading a pan-European. Uh, study of teenagers in media that is, is really great and is covering many of the same questions. Uh, the OECD often does similar work to ours in developing countries or in developed countries about tech adoption. You know, they've got a, a compendium of data uh, about um, who has broadband, who has mobile connectivity, who uses social networks and things. They don't get into the particular details about the impacts on healthcare and education the way that we do. But OEC data are quite good on this. And there is movement in, in the philanthropic community to try to build um, Pew-like capacity, uh, particularly in, in poorer parts of Asia and Africa and, and South America. Um, I don't, none of them have yet quite um, flowered into the, and, and have done research of the breadth uh, that Pew does. The other resource that I would point you to is, is my colleagues uh, just across the hallway here at the Global Attitudes Project. If you look at for global attitudes and Pew, you will find um, data that they've been gathering for about a decade that mostly focuses on geopolitics and, and major political questions, but they've begun to gather technology-related data in, in some of their surveys, surveys in dozens of countries. So at least they're getting readings on the level of adoption of cell phones, the level of adoption of social media, computers, and things like that. So I would point people to that. And there's also the, the Center for the Digital Future at, at uh, USC also has some cross-cultural work similar to ours. Terrific. So I'm putting the link to Lee's new book in the chat. It's called Network, the New Social Operating System. Lee, thanks so much for being here today. What a treat to have you talking to us. Well, thank you so much to everybody. Thank you, Steve. So I'm using the applause button, which is granted is hard to find. Look for the smiley face, then go down to applause. If you raise your hand, we know you're applauding. That's the third icon over. Thanks, Lee. Thanks, everybody, for being here. Uh, we're almost at the top of the hour. We have two sessions coming up uh, right after this. Um, Ida Jones on reading, writing, and collaborating through discussion boards, and Vicki Phillips on scaffolding Bloom's taxonomy with VoiceThread.
Have a great day, this third day of the Learning 2.0 conference. Thanks again to Lee. Thanks, everybody. Bye now.